Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Chenny Wu, in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Little progress from the third round of talks between Russia and Ukraine today. The two countries blame each other for failing to get the humanitarian quarters up and running. The Biden administration has increased weapons shipments to Ukraine recently. But could this assistance actually prolong the war? Gas prices are surging and the White House today confirms an unexpected move seeking to alleviate the fallout from a potential Russian oil embargo. Public schools are gender transitioning students, and parents say they're being kept in the dark. Mothers took to the podium today, drawing attention to the issue. The People's Convoy has been staying in Maryland since Friday, and they have yet to enter Washington, D.C. One speaker told the convoy they could be detained if they enter the D.C. area. Russian and Ukrainian delegates say they made minor progress in the third round of talks today. The main subject was humanitarian corridors, and the two sides accused each other of interfering with the evacuation process. NTD's Allison Lee has more. Russian Ukrainian delegates met for a third round of talks in Belarus on Monday. They had aimed to address three sets of issues going into the meeting, humanitarian relief, political settlements and military settlements. There are some small positive shifts regarding logistics of humanitarian corridors. Corrections will be made to them and we will have more effective help for people who suffer today from Russian aggression. The Ukrainian side says there are no significant results in terms of political settlements, but they will keep talking. Meanwhile, the Russian side says the talks didn't meet their expectations and there are no positive developments. We already have concrete deals, projects and pitches ready, and we are hoping that we could at least sign the protocol on a subject agreed upon in principle. However, the Ukrainian side took those documents home to study. Russian delegates say the talks will continue and they hope they can take a bigger step forward next time. Let's not indulge in illusions that the next step or the step after it would lead to a final result. This will be hard and consistent work. In the second round of talks last week, Russia and Ukraine agreed to allow temporary ceasefires while civilians evacuate major cities through humanitarian corridors. But such efforts fell apart over the weekend. Ukraine blames Russia. Russians were again cynically shelling the route which our humanitarian convoy should have taken. And Russia blames Ukraine. They say Ukraine is withholding civilians and hasn't stood by a single condition of establishing humanitarian corridors. In the span of these three hours alone, the Russian armed forces have documented 172 attacks from the Ukrainian armed forces and the nationalists across the six predetermined humanitarian corridors. The Russian delegation says they expect humanitarian corridors in Ukraine to finally start functioning on Tuesday. According to Turkey's top diplomat, Russia and Ukraine's foreign ministers are scheduled to meet in Turkey on Thursday. Allison Lee, NTD News. What do local Ukrainians expect from the meetings with Russia? NTD reporter Anna Varava is in Ukraine, and she spoke to locals about their expectations. The third round of talks between Russia and Ukraine are expected over the coming days. We asked Ukrainians what they expect from these talks. 
Honestly, I don't really hope that anything will change, but I would like there to be peace, no war, no shooting. I think they will be so twisted, waiting to say he will give in first, and God forbid it is us. The hope is that something will change, but there's little faith in it. Of course, we want them to get off our land, and it's clear that they have a different position. Every day we wait for it all to end. We cry, we pray, we're very worried. And every day we expect it to end. We hope that one day this reptile will be severely punished. We're for Ukraine. We hope it will end soon and let's see how it will be. We all believe in our victory. I really hope that everything will end as soon as possible and our people will be able to get off their basements, out of their apartments. Because many of my friends were injured, their parents, even their apartments were damaged. I have a lot of close friends who no longer have a home. So let's hope, and we'll hope, and we want to go home. We believe in our state, in our armed forces, and we do not believe in Russia. We believe in our victory and that we're stronger. We believe that God is on our side. A large group of demonstrators gathered in Chicago on Sunday afternoon to protest Russia's aggression in Ukraine. It follows Russian President Vladimir Putin warning that he would consider any country that imposes a no-fly zone to be engaging in a military conflict with Russia. And in response, Washington and NATO are reluctant to impose a no-fly zone. On Sunday afternoon, demonstrators crowded Chicago's Daily Plaza to stand with Ukraine. They are urging the U.S. and NATO to impose a no-fly zone and supply air support. I do have relatives in the Ukraine right now in Kyiv, and they are suffering from bombing. They are scared. They do need help from the U.S. government, and I do want them to close the sky. My brother is actively fighting along with his old battalion. He was there since 2014 on the front lines. There are 18 children dead. Then I'm on a news app. They send a picture, two more dead, as slaughtered along with a family. We're dying in droves. Close the sky. Help save our civilians. We'll do the rest. What I'm here for is definitely supporting the, the global fight against these atrocities and uh, calling on the U.S. government without delay without haggling and without empty words to provide effective, we know that, sending Patriot missiles would be the answer. The U.S. and NATO have resisted Ukraine's appeal for a no-fly zone. In an interview with ABC on Sunday, U.S. Senator Marco Rubio said it means World War III. He explained that a no-fly zone means a willingness to shoot down and engage Russian airplanes not only in Ukraine but also in Russia and Belarus. Illinois Representative Mike Quigley spoke at the rally and expressed his support for Ukraine. He had a Zoom call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and praised Zelensky's leadership. He is incredibly brave, calm, resolute, and an amazing spokesman to the world. President Zelensky is the true voice of the spirit of NATO. The reason NATO was formed in the first place is because of the situation Ukraine faces today. Treat Ukraine like it was already a member of NATO. Long live Zelensky! Long live Ukraine! God bless you all! 
In an effort to prevent the escalation of the war, the U.S. will supply funding and training to Ukraine, but says it will not put U.S. troops on the ground there. The U.S. has been supplying Ukraine with military assistance since 2014. But the Washington Post reports that over the past week, the Biden administration has increased weapon shipments and even sent Stinger anti-aircraft missiles for the first time. Experts say such a move could extend the war. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. Polish officials on Monday said it was unlikely they would send fighter jets to Ukraine in exchange for F-16 jets offered by the Biden administration. One expert says that could lead to a scenario that President Vladimir Putin would likely view as an act of war. It definitely is of concern to Moscow because uh, Moscow already announced uh, a day ago that, for example, the use of foreign airports by the Ukrainian Air Force could be considered uh, an act of war. Uh, in other words, if, if, for example, the Ukrainians were to stage attacks on uh, the Russian army from airfields air in Poland, this would constitute uh, an aggressive act. Scott Ewinger, a retired CIA station chief, also believes that continued shipments of firepower to Ukraine will make the war last longer. But uh, I think the worst, uh, and so this this sort of uh, war of nerves uh, continues. Uh, NATO and the West and the United States are all willing to supply weapons to the Ukrainians, which will help, but will also extend the war. And by virtue of that, will extend the personal loss in terms of civilians as well. But many American patriots and freedom fighters from other countries have volunteered to enter combat alongside Ukrainian soldiers. Casey Fleming, CEO of Black Ops Partners and a corporate strategic risk specialist, says if the war in Ukraine isn't stopped, it could spread into other countries, including the U.S. The issue is now is Ukraine is just the, the front. It's the, the first attack against you know, the first current era or current time attack against the free world and democracy. And if we don't start fighting at that front, that front's going to continue through Europe and the United States and North America, South America, and so on. He says the U.S. and NATO can continue to supply the resistance in Ukraine without directly getting involved. So volunteers taking up arms is not part of a strategy of hybrid warfare. Every free world country is being attacked in hybrid warfare. What's hybrid warfare? It's, again, it's everything short of conventional warfare, where conventional warfare is the final stage of hybrid warfare. There's many examples. So uh, unrestricted hybrid warfare uh, from a cyber perspective also is to shut down communications, military command and control uh, when it's using cyber means to do so or cyber means to communicate. Or for example, the, uh, the Ukrainian government uh, not being able to communicate through their websites and social media to the Ukrainian people. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on a quick visit of the three Baltic states, giving assurances of American support as Russia presses forward with its invasion of Ukraine. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Will the U.S. ban Russian oil imports? The White House today responds as momentum builds for harsher sanctions. NTD's Iris Tao has the details. The U.S. has not made a decision about a potential Russian oil embargo. Well, no decision has been made at this point uh, by the president. Uh, and those discussions are ongoing internally and also with our counterparts uh, and uh, partners uh, in Europe and around the world. 
The uncertainty comes amid a growing call for harsher sanctions on Russia from both at home and abroad. It could be called embargo or just a normal issue when you refuse to give money to terrorists. And the bottom line is if you're going to fight a, a war monger such as Putin, uh, you better have a weapon that'll at least offset what he's doing, and we have it in energy we have in America, so let's do it. President Biden talked about this topic with leaders of France, Germany, and the United Kingdom this morning. But Reuters reports that the U.S. may move ahead with the ban even without a participation of European allies. And top Democrats and Republicans said today they had reached a deal to ban Russian energy imports and to suspend Russia's normal trade relations. But the ramifications are hard to ignore, as gas prices in the U.S. are already pushing above $4 a gallon. Seven million barrels, there's no way that we could continue without higher prices um, without those barrels. The White House also confirms that senior U.S. officials traveled to Venezuela this weekend to talk with Nicolas Maduro's regime. It's seeking to repair hostile relations since Venezuela is the top oil exporter. Axios reports that Biden may be exploring additional options for oil with a possible trip to Saudi Arabia, but the White House today refused to confirm it. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. A boat packed to the brim with migrants ended its voyage on the Florida coast. Aboard the vessel were about 300 Haitians. The United States Coast Guard evacuated passengers from the boat on Sunday. NBC reports that law enforcement learned of the foreign vessel when a good Samaritan had seen it and reported it. Some 160 Haitians jumped into the waters of the Florida Keys and swam to shore. That's according to a chief border patrol agent. He also said that many of the immigrants needed medical attention. The ship was visibly overloaded, for which law enforcement blames smugglers. Border Patrol says it's investigating the illegal voyage. In Iowa, tornadoes whipped through the city and destroyed homes. Seven people died. Four of the dead were family members and two were children. It's the state's deadliest storm since 2008. The oldest victim was 72, and the youngest was two. Iowa's governor was trying to hold back tears while addressing the tragedy. She praised the state's residents for coming together to help. Six of the dead are from Madison County, and one was from Lucas County. The Madison County Emergency Management Director says 52 homes in the city and the county were reported damaged or destroyed. The National Weather Service says at least two of the tornadoes were categorized as strong. They spun between 136 and 165 miles per hour. CNN says more than a dozen states also reported severe weather. The outlet says the tornadoes could bring more severe weather to 60 million people. It says the storms could stretch from Philadelphia to Atlanta. Some schools in the U.S. are transitioning students. That means they're encouraged to live and to identify as the opposite sex or as genderless. Meanwhile, parents say they're left in the dark. NTD's Miguel Moreno reports. The U.S. is in the midst of a scholastic shift. School boards have been shaken by parents who want critical race theory out of the system and away from their kids. Others are shedding light on another public school issue. Under the banner of non-discrimination, they are assisting students to transition genders, and they do it without parental consent. And in the policy, they're very clear that parents are not included in this. If the student and the school together 
decide that it's not safe to include the parents. Nicole Solis is a mother from Rhode Island and one of the Heritage Foundation's panelists. A student who wants to transition genders could be given a different pronoun and or given access to a restroom of the opposite sex. We found three schools in Rhode Island, Virginia, and Florida that do this for students if they wanted, no parental consent necessary. Proponents say these transgender policies create a supportive and safe environment for trans students. We finally learned that they had socially transitioned my daughter. January Littlejohn and her husband are now suing Florida's Leon County School Board. They completed a six-page plan behind closed doors with three school officials that consisted of the vice principal, the guidance counselor, and a social worker I had never met. But in a statement to NTD News, the school board spokesperson said, in part, that, quote, the Little Johns clearly instructed the school staff via email to allow their child to take the lead on this. The spokesperson also said he hopes for a swift outcome in this case. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. The People's Convoy is currently staying in Hagerstown, Maryland. The group is made up of people and their vehicles, asking that pandemic-related restrictions be lifted. The crowd has yet to enter Washington, D.C., but one speaker said members of the convoy could be detained if they enter the Capitol. NTD's Jason Perry has a story. The People's Convoy was supposed to arrive at the Capitol Beltway, which surrounds Washington, D.C., on Saturday, March 5th. Joshua Yoder said he talked with federal agents. They said anyone who enters D.C. with the convoy will probably be detained. And you're not going to the District of Columbia. I'm begging you. Stand up peacefully. Stand up lawfully and make a difference. And we're going to do that. You're going to do that by voting. You're going to do that by standing up and making your voices heard. The next morning, the co-organizer of the People's Convoy, Brian Brazi, told the crowd that people in D.C. were willing to meet with them, and he added that... Today we decided that we're going to go on to the Beltway. The instructions were to make two laps around the Capitol Beltway, but not to enter D.C. at the time. Then the convoy lined up and headed to I-495. I'm now here on the Capitol Beltway, right outside of Washington, D.C. The People's Convoy is making two laps around the Capitol. And after they finish that, they plan to return to Maryland and discuss their plan to try to end all COVID mandates as they rally for freedom. I think today was a very special day. I think today we have a win. Today was amazing. It looked good on all the live feeds that I was able to watch and all the news reports that I was getting. Everybody wanting statements and questions and then watching the fake news say fake crap, as usual. We talked to some people to see how they felt about driving in the convoy around D.C. It's bringing the American people back together and lifting the American spirit that I think has been deflated for a really long time. This is a free country. We don't need to be told what to do. It's time for us to stand up. It was amazing. I. I've done a lot of things in my life and I never felt part of such an amazing thing ever. It's amazing. It's an amazing feeling to see what the news media doesn't show, which is Americans coming together. Like I said, every man, woman and child, they are standing up, but it's not being reported like it should be. It's, it's just a beautiful thing. In Canada, probably the mistake that we maybe made that is not being made here in the USA is we went in and we stayed put 
in our capital. So let's be very clear though, we did not block all passageways. There was many, many roads available for anyone to go in and out, but they didn't like that we were there. But what we needed was other people to carry the torch. And now the truckers here in the USA are carrying the torch. And all, all, honestly, like sometimes I can't even help. I just start crying because it's so beautiful. The organizer of the People's Convoy says today was a success when they drove around two laps around DC. And he asked everyone just to hang out and they'll be watching a movie tonight called Convoy. And they'll have their briefing tomorrow morning for their next convoy at 8 a.m. Jason Perry, NTD News, Maryland. Coming up, amid the war in Europe, a U.S. senator says Americans are also at risk from an attack from Russia, what you can do to protect yourself. And one of America's most accomplished female basketball stars, her arrest in Russia and the uncertainty over her return. That and more on NTD News. As Russia continues its attack on Ukraine, Americans can be at risk here at home too. That's because of the risk of Russian cyber attacks. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more on that from New York City. New York politicians are calling on citizens to step up their cybersecurity amid an increased risk of attacks from Russia. They say Russia is ramping up cyber attacks on Ukraine, and those attacks might not be limited to just Ukraine. Following the sanctions that the U.S. and our allies have levied on Russia, there's an increased risk that Russia will carry out retaliatory cyber attacks, particularly against New York State infrastructure and individuals. The senator says that 85% of New York City's infrastructure is privately owned. She says those businesses are doing a good job in working on cybersecurity together with the government. That is not happening in the rest of the country in many, many places. And so cyber protection is up to you personally. It's up to you as a CEO of a business to personally put in the best cyber protection you can do. So how do you protect yourself from cyber attacks? You can think of these as the three S's of cyber safety. First, secure your accounts. That means making sure you have strong passwords, different passwords, different ones for each account, from your bank account to your Instagram. And turn on two-factor authentication. Second, software updates. Make sure you download the latest updates on your phone, computers, laptops, apps, and programs as soon as they're released. They're often, they often contain critical security updates and upgrades to protect you from new threats. And third, stay vigilant. Most cyber attackers aren't going to break into your accounts. They're going to try to trick you into you letting them. Sometimes hackers try to scare and threaten people in order to get their information. The senator said it's important to just ignore them. Arian Pastar, NTD News, New York. U.S. women's basketball star Brittany Griner was arrested on drug charges last month at a Moscow airport. Russian Customs Service says a search of her luggage revealed vape cartridges that contain oil derived from cannabis. But the exact date of the arrest and the current whereabouts of the WNBA star remain unclear. And today's Dave Martin has more. Seven-time WNBA All-Star Brittany Griner was reportedly on her way back from the FIBA Women's Basketball World Cup qualifying tournaments when she was arrested. A member of the U.S. House Armed Services Committee said it's going to be very difficult to get Greiner out of Russia. Our uh, diplomatic relationships with Russia are 
non-existent at the moment. Uh, perhaps during the various negotiations that may take place, she might be able to be uh, one of the solutions. I don't know. Greiner, one of the most accomplished American athletes, has won two Olympic gold medals for Team USA, a WNBA championship with the Phoenix Mercury, and an NCAA championship with Baylor. And like a number of WNBA players, she plays her off-seasons overseas in countries like Russia, where she earns more than a million dollars a season. That's more than quadruple her base salary with Phoenix. The six-foot-nine center was one of more than a dozen WNBA players playing in Russia and Ukraine this winter. The league has confirmed that everyone but the 31-year-old Griner has left. The situation with Griner is yet another instance of how the sports world has been affected by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Saturday, Formula One driver Nikita Mazepin had his contract with the Haas F1 team terminated, along with title sponsor Eurokali, a Russian fertilizer company. The sports governing body, the FIA, had previously said that Russian drivers could compete in international motorsport as long as they raced under a neutral flag while not expressing support of Russia's invasion. Meanwhile, the Paralympics were originally supposed to go on as planned with Russian and Belarusian athletes competing under neutral flags and colors per the IPC's announcement on March 2nd. Less than 24 hours later, the IPC reversed this decision and banned all Paralympians from Russia and Belarus. The Paralympic governing body said it was evident that athletes would refuse to compete against Paralympians from those two countries. Dave Martin, NTD News. The NFL has announced the suspension of Atlanta Falcons receiver Calvin Ridley for betting on NFL games. The NFL says the bets took place during a five-day period in late November 2021. At the time, Ridley was away from the team's facility on the non-football illness list. The league said that its investigation found no inside information was used, nor that any game was compromised. Ridley, a first-round pick back in 2018, was a second-team All-Pro in 2020. This past season, Ridley played in just five games before leaving to focus on his mental health. Amid a homelessness crisis, the city of Los Angeles may convert some of its land for temporary housing. This could mean more tiny home villages and RV parking spaces. Fewer imports recently at Southern California ports. What do experts say and when do they expect the pace to pick up? That and more on NTD News. Los Angeles may soon repurpose over two dozen of its vacant lots into temporary housing for the homeless. Angelinos could see more tiny home villages and RV parking spaces. NTD's David Lamb reports. The city of Los Angeles may soon convert 26 of its city properties into interim housing. Ron Galperin, the city controller, said vacant city-owned parking lots could be used to allow people to live in their cars or RVs. He stated, increasingly, Angelinos are calling for development of interim housing facilities because of the inadequate supply of permanent housing and the lengthy timelines associated with projects developed using bond proceeds from Proposition HHH. Charity on Wheels founder Zach Southall also said the previous $1.2 billion plan to build 10,000 permanent housing units was too costly. He said solving homelessness takes more than just housing. 
you know, sometimes that's mental illness. Sometimes that's um, addiction. Sometimes it's just people fell on hard times and didn't have a family to fall back on. They just need a hand up, you know, not a hand out so much. So according to a report from the city's controller released on January 12th, the city identified 1.7 million square feet of land, although the entire land may not be suitable. The project is focusing on a mixture of vacant land and parking lots. Marlton Square in Crenshaw and Lanzett Industrial Park near Watts were some of the sites identified for interim shelters and tiny home villages. Other properties such as Skid Row's Parker Center, which used to be old police headquarters, are also being considered. Officials are working with the Federal Aviation Administration to see whether airport properties can be used as well. According to the controller's report, each of the 26 identified sites has met city standards meaning they have at least a minimum of 20 parking spaces for what they call safe parking, as well as being available for at least three years. David Lamb, NTD News, California. Fewer ships are coming into California ports compared to two months ago, and it's giving the supply chain a chance to catch up before imports start to pick up again in the warmer months. Here's more. Los Angeles and Long Beach ports are seeing fewer cargo ships in recent days. Port officials have said that the slowdown has allowed for clearing the docks in preparation for a busy spring and summer. The number of ships headed to the port on March 4th dropped to 59. That's down from a record high in January of 109. On the bright side, the slowdown has allowed port operators to clear cargo and get goods off the docks. Port of Los Angeles spokesman Philip Sanfield said, we're basically seeing the effects of the slowdown of the Lunar New Year. He added, we're going to see a rebound of more cargo coming our way. Ships typically take two weeks after leaving Asia to reach the port complex. The ports are taking advantage of the lull to clear out the container stockpile. Kip Laudit, executive director of the Marine Exchange of Southern California, said, everybody's working very hard to try to move the cargo. Long Beach reported about 13,1200 containers stored for more than six days at its terminal on March 4th. That was half the amount the port had in October. Experts predict it could be six to 12 months before the ports clear the backup and return to pre-pandemic operations. Federal agencies have arrested a California-based military contractor for allegedly sending technology to China. The Justice Department said he broke federal export laws by sending out sensitive U.S. tech to multiple foreign countries. Federal agencies arrested 77-year-old Joe Seri, former owner and CEO of Tungsten Heavy Powder and Parts. They allege he knowingly and willfully exported military intelligence. The intelligence includes data and drawings to China and India without U.S. approval. The San Diego-based company supplies fragments and weapon-grade components made of tungsten, a rare metal, to the military. He conspired with his 70-year-old brother, Dror Seri, a dual citizen of Israel and South Africa. He remains a fugitive and is believed to be living in Israel. A U.S. attorney stated, the indictment alleges that these brothers disregarded important regulations designed to keep sensitive information from falling into the hands of those who would harm America. The brothers allegedly created a non-company email to secretly access the sensitive documents from Tungsten's part system. 
They exported the sensitive technical drawings by email when Dror was in India and China. Prosecutors said Tungsten Parts had contracts with multiple aerospace and defense companies from 2016 to 2019 to work on projects involving the construction of an advanced rapid response weapon. It's illegal to transfer data, goods, and services that are designed as defense items out of the United States without a license. If convicted, violators face a maximum penalty of up to 20 years in prison and a $1 million fine. Tungsten Parts has agreed to assist with the investigation. NTD reached out to Tungsten Parts for a comment. Despite China's modest economic growth forecast, the communist regime will spend 7.1% more on defense this year, reaching a total of $229 billion. That's according to figures released on Saturday. And an expert says the real number may be even higher. $229 billion. That's almost one-third of U.S. defense spending and nine times that of its neighbor, Taiwan. Su Ziyun, a department head at Taiwan's Institute for National Defense and Security Research, says for Beijing, the expansion of its military power is the highest priority. According to my personal research, China's military spending has doubled since Xi Jinping came to power in 2012. Li Zhengshou, an expert at Taiwan's National Policy Foundation, says the Chinese regime's real defense budget is likely higher than the official numbers. The Chinese budget, especially the defense budget, has never been transparent. The money is scattered among different areas. For example, part of certain universities' budget for scientific research and development is actually used for military equipment. So many think that the actual amount may be much higher than what is announced. The regime has the world's largest standing military, with 3 million personnel, while the U.S. has 1.4 million active troops. But the Chinese regime still falls short in other areas. For example, it has two active aircraft carriers, compared with 11 in the U.S. And the U.S. also owns the world's most cutting-edge military equipment and technology. Kuo Yujun, a security expert at Taiwan's National Sun Yat-sen University, says Beijing is forced to spend more on research and development in light of the China-U.S. technology war. Beijing's defense spending this year is under closer scrutiny from the international community. That's as Russia's invasion of Ukraine sparks speculation that China might be more likely to attempt a takeover of Taiwan if it sensed a lack of resolution from the U.S. and its allies. In the UK, more than 100 million pounds of aid for Ukraine has been raised in four days. The Disasters Emergency Committee said that was the equivalent of more than one million pounds an hour and was an amazing show of support from the British public. The Disasters Emergency Committee, or DEC, said the funds are already being used by its charities to provide people fleeing the war with essential supplies, medical assistance and trauma care. DEC said the message from aid workers is that money is wanted rather than donated items, which are often not what people need and are difficult to transport. It urged people to keep donating to help charities meet the growing humanitarian need. The DEC is made up of 15 leading UK charities, including the British Red Cross, Save the Children, Oxfam and Age International. It said generous donations have been made by members of the royal family and that the government has donated £25 million in match funding. Police detained thousands of people across Russia on Sunday. 
They were protesting President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. That's according to an independent protest monitoring group. They say they've documented the detention of over 4,300 people in 56 cities across the country. Video obtained by Reuters showed dozens of protesters in Yekaterinburg being detained on Sunday, and one protester there was shown being beaten with a baton and kicked on the ground by police in riot gear. The video showed numerous protesters, some elderly, being escorted onto buses by security forces. Russia's interior ministry said earlier that police had detained around 3,500 people, including 1,700 in Moscow, 750 in St. Petersburg, and 1,061 in other cities. The interior ministry also said 5,200 people had taken part in the protests. Some Russian state-controlled media carried short reports about Sunday's protests, but they did not feature high in news bulletins. The last Russian protests with a similar number of arrests were in January of last year, when thousands demanded the release of opposition leader Alexei Navalny after he was arrested upon returning from Germany, where he had been recovering from being poisoned with a nerve agent. Navalny had called for anti-war protests on Sunday across Russia and the rest of the world. Protesters gathered at Parliament Square in London on Sunday and outside the White House in Washington, D.C., as well as in Mexico City, New Delhi, Istanbul, Budapest, Belgrade, and Brussels. And residents of some Ukrainian towns and cities occupied by Russian forces also took to the streets in protest. Sanctions and travel restrictions are affecting many people as the country is increasingly isolated by the West. A high-speed train from St. Petersburg to the Finnish capital Helsinki is one of the few remaining travel links between Russia and the EU. This report comes from NTD's Joy de Good. An increasing number of Russians are making their way to the EU using one of the last remaining travel links. The high-speed train from St. Petersburg to the Finnish capital, Helsinki. A joint venture between Finnish and Russian railways runs two daily services between the two cities. This lady was visiting family with her children when their flight home to New York was cancelled. We had to change the flights and it's just very serious problem because the relationship between two good countries are not good right now. But I hope they will get better soon. Some are concerned that increasing prices and travel restrictions will continue to make things difficult. The director of VR's Finnish Russian passenger services said demand for tickets had increased over the past week, with trains fully booked over the weekend through Monday. She said there were plans to put in an extra daily service. And uh, we are just negotiating, negotiating about that with the authorities, if it's possible. And we are hoping that it can be possible uh, during, during next week. Due to the pandemic and border restrictions, currently only holders of Finnish and Russian passports are allowed to travel on the train. Huri said VR was in talks with Russian authorities to allow third country nationals to board the train too, giving EU nationals an easier route to exit Russia. Joy Dugit, NTD News. South Korea will elect a new president for a single five-year term this Wednesday. The election comes amid growing tensions in the Indo-Pacific region. We'll take a look at the front-runners and where they stand on North Korea, China and the U.S. NTD's Xiao Hua Li has a story. Kissing babies, playing up local connections and campaigning, 
The presidential candidates in South Korea used all three tactics ahead of Wednesday's election. The winner will determine the country's relations with the U.S., North Korea, and China for the next five years. It truly looks like a battle for, you know, survival for the country. And, and the election on Wednesday sees two front runners. Progressive Lee Jae-myun is running a tight race with conservative Yoon Sung-yeon, who pledged to get tougher on China and closer with the U.S. South Korea faces a difficult balancing act between its top ally, the U.S., and its top trading partner, China. And North Korea's fast-advancing nuclear program won't be easy to deal with. On Saturday, North Korea fired a missile into waters off its east coast, the ninth launch of the year. I think that more people would align with the conservative uh, position that South Korea needs to properly defend itself, be willing to take on North Korea if necessary, and present a strong uh, front towards North Korea rather than accommodating and giving in uh, the way the leftist uh, side of the political spectrum in South Korea uh, would, would call for. Like current President Moon Jae-in, Lee is a member of the Democratic Party of Korea. Under Moon's five years leadership, South Korea focused on engaging North Korea. That left the country at times out of sync with the U.S., which backs stronger confrontation with the North Korea. And it seems like it strongly indicates that the Moon administration and its potential predecessor, Lee Jae-myung, is planning to uh, make South Korea into more of a, uh, a socialist-centered country um, that is more focused towards uh, the CCP and the needs of North Korea itself. Lee backs President Moon's three no policies, no further deployment of thought, the U.S.-led global missile defense system, no participation in thought, and no participation in the military alliance involving the U.S. and Japan. The leftist side, which is represented by the current administration of President Moon, uh, they are actually uh, anti-American. On the other hand, Yon wants to ally South Korea's diplomacy more closely with the U.S. He has been calling for additional THAAD deployment, a move that could face economic retaliation from China. South Korea will not be uh, picking a fight or trying to provoke uh, China at all, but rather it will be standing up for its interests, it will be defending itself, it will not be uh, rolling on the floor just doing whatever China tells it to do. China appears to be one of the central talking points in this election. The Winter Olympics in Beijing sparked a wave of anti-China uproar among South Koreans in recent weeks. This, combined with broader concerns about Beijing's aggression in the South China Sea and the Indo-Pacific region. South Korea's stance on China is also closely linked to its relationship with the U.S., given Beijing and Washington's recent rivalry. Xiaohua Li, NTD News. Coming up, marble statues from the Palace of Versailles that have been missing for 140 years are finally found. We'll learn more about their history in just a moment here on NTD News. In France, the Palace of Versailles has recently recovered some masterpieces they lost track of 140 years ago. Two exceptional white marble statues built by the Order of the King showcase the high level of skill of craftsmen of that time. And today's France correspondent David Vives has more. 
Once upon a time, the god of northwest wind, Sefer, was walking through the sky. As he appeared, he fell in love with the goddess of youth, Flora. Their union bore the spring. Curator Lionel Alsac says this masterpiece is a showcase for French art during the 18th century. You see the moment when Zephyr arrives, perched on a cloud. The goddess of flowers has this hand gesture to show her surprise, whilst also a bit scared at the same time. Her eyes are penetrated by love, tenderness, sweetness. The little angel points his finger to them, saying, they fell in love because of me, and now spring will come with all its blessings. This statue is a piece ordered by Louis XIV, which was one of the last wishes of the aging king around the end of the 18th century. King Louis XIV funded many artists, painters, sculptors and craftsmen to decorate the Palace of Versailles. They had to follow very strict standards in their work and the king himself would supervise the theme and the characters that were depicted. Versailles might deserve to be called the largest outdoor museum. Over 800 sculptures made of bronze, marble or leather decorate these alleys. Arsac says the making of the Cipher, Flora and Love, marks a very special moment in the life of Louis XIV. Sometimes we refer to Louis XIV's end of reign as an austere moment that the king spent in devotion. This is true. But the art of that moment shows this was not austere, but very light, with themes marked by mythology, love, and sometimes linked to childhood. As for some paintings that decorate the walls and the ceiling of the palace, such as the Hall of Mirrors, the characters depicted are gods and heavenly beings. These were to help the king in the wars he led, to bring him glory, and provide blessings and benefits to the kingdom. This too was the role of this statue, the Abundance, which was created to celebrate the end of a war. It stands for peacefulness under the reign of Louis XV. You see the goddess of abundance landing on the ground, coming from up above. You see the wind blowing through her clothes and hair. She appears to men to bring blessings on the earth, grapes, wheat, jewels. This grouping of statues might have been lost forever. The Cipher and the Abundance left the castle in 8081 after being purchased by the Rothschild family. But the statues were stolen after World War II. It took more than a year of investigation for Alsac to find them. He searched in all newspapers and archives until he found the pieces in the Angola embassy after paying a visit there. I recognized the two statues. We wrote a letter to the ambassador for his government to see if we could have them back. Angola immediately accepted. They have been extremely generous. After the exhibition, the two statues will be placed within the Grand Trianon. They'll join the other groups of statues and stand where they belong. David Duves, NTD News, Paris. And Disneyland Paris kicked off celebrations of its 30th anniversary. Performers in costumes depicting Disney's iconic characters danced in front of the park's Sleeping Beauty castle as families and fans looked on. Originally dubbed the Euro Disney Resort, the complex first opened on April 12, 1992. The ongoing celebrations are meant to last until the anniversary date is reached. The celebrations that launched on Saturday saw the unveiling of various new shows featuring recent Disney characters. There's also a nightly light show in which 150 drones form the 30th anniversary logo in the castle above in the sky above the castle.
Disneyland Paris is Europe's biggest amusement park. It attracted 15 million visitors every year before the pandemic. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Chenny Wu.